Our second Bible reading tonight is from Romans chapter 12, if you want to flick to that, um, and a reading verses 9 to 21. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, uh, do keep your Bibles open. We will work our way through this passage. And like Ian said, I think it's quite an easy passage to understand, but the difficulty comes in applying it to our lives, to our hearts, and living it out. And so for that, we need, a, need God's help. But do listen attentively, keep your Bibles open so that we'll work our way through this together. Uh, but let's ask God what we do believe, that he will change our hearts because of this. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it penetrates the deepest recesses of our hearts to change it, that we might live lives that is more and more like Jesus Christ each day. And so we pray that that will be true tonight, even after this sermon, even after we reflect on these words, that you'll be changing us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, each week when you rock up to church, do you come with any expectations? What do you expect when you come? Or each week when you join one of our growth groups, do you come with expectations? What do you expect? Or each week after our service here and when we meet in a hall for supper, do you go with expectations? What do you expect when you come, when we meet as Christians? And so whether you're here for the first time, or you've been coming recently, or you've been here for only a year or even 10 years, what do you expect from the people of God? Do you come with expectations? Do you have high expectations of the people of God? Do you have high expectations of even yourselves? What do you expect? Now, you might have the expectation that I expect a few things here. You might think I expect all of us to wear navy, maybe, look conservative, be responsible in that way. No bright colours, it just hurts my eyes. You might expect that. Or you might just expect that. I would expect us just to be a, bit, a little less emotional 
and perhaps maybe not laugh at your pastor's expense. Now, those might be good expectations. They might be nice. But not what I expect. In fact, more important than what I expect, tonight we're going to look at what God expects from us. What does God expect from us, his people? You see, what God expects from this passage, from us, is love. It follows on from what we saw last week. In view of God's mercy, in view of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, all that God has done, what does God expect from us? Well, God expects love. That our worship of him is, remember the word, it's logical, it's authentic, it's genuine, it's consistent. That our hearts are moved to worship God logically, rightly, genuinely, with love from our hearts. That our love for each other, for his people, is also genuine. You see, that is what God expects. And so each time the people of God meet, that is what God expects And so that's what we should expect of each other as well. That our life is so radically, so delightfully, so beautifully different from the world. So much so that this is the place I want to be each week. This must be the highlight of each week. Because it's so filled with love. It is so much like what God's people are meant to be like. And so that we to each other, we would see each other... And we would think, you are the people I want to dearly, deeply, personally know. You see, is that what we expect when we come each week? You see, that is what God expects. And so it should be what we expect as well. And so when we have a look at this passage, Paul makes it simply clear, blatantly clear. It is simple, hard to apply, but it is simple. And it really says two big points. Firstly, we are to be uncompromising in love, all of us, uncompromising in love. And secondly, we are to be uncompromising in goodness. And if our lives can reflect that as the people of God, the world will look upon us and they will say, well, your God is indeed the God of love. They can see from how we relate, your God is indeed the good God. And so firstly, let's have a look at this. We are to be uncompromising in love, without any condition, without any excuses. And if that is what we're like, that's a community I want to belong to. That's a community we should expect here, whether you're new or old. That's the community we expect here. Now, of course, when we talk about love, we hear about love all the time. In the the royal wedding, the, the minister there spoke about love. But when we talk about love here... We're never thinking about, we're never to think about the Hollywood type of love. You know what type of love that's like? That type of love says, I love you, which really means I find you likable, or I find you lovable, I, f- I find you fulfilling, or I find you satisfying, or I find you just easy on the eyes. It doesn't hurt my, your face, doesn't hurt my eyes. But that's really another way of saying that's a Hollywood type of love. But it's really another way of saying, I love you means I want you because you are good for me. And so if that's how much of our world thinks of love, it should be no surprise then that when big movie stars in their marriage, it breaks up, broken marriages, divorces, that shouldn't be any surprise to us. What's surprising is if big stars remain married, stick to their marriage. And so when we talk about love here, it begins with love, 
The word love here is the Greek word agape. It is divine love. It is, in fact, a distinctively Christian love. And it means, I love you despite you. I love you with all your flaws and warts and brokenness. And I love you from God. I love you enough to even give my son to you. To watch my son hang and die on the cross for you. That's the type of love we're talking about here. Sacrificial, selfless, divine love. And so if that is the type of love God has for us, that is also the type of love God expects from us and nothing less. In our community, we must be having this I will lay my life down for you type of love. In our community, we must have this I will go out of my way for you type of love. And of course, not just knowing it, but doing it. Knowing it is easy, but doing it. And so a quick test. Reflect just on this evening and ask yourself, since coming to church, how much of our thoughts, how much of what we just said, even this evening to each other, how much of what we've done this, just this evening can be described by this type of love? Just this evening, were our thoughts selfless? Were our deeds and action and service sacrificial? But you see, this is what we are to expect because this is what God expects. And if it is such a love, then it must be real. It must be non-hypocritical. It must not be fake. And that's how Paul begins. Look at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Now, in an, another translation, we read, love must be unhypocritical. In the ancient world, to be a hypocrite was to be an actor, that is, to put on a mask, to be fake. But here, love must be unhypocritical. And then we read on, verse 9, hate what is evil, cling, hold on to what is good. Now, the word for cling here is the same word for how a husband and wife are to cling to each other, to stick to each other. And so we are to cling to what is good, hate what is evil. And so what should we expect then amongst us as a community, as the people of God? Well, there must be no fakeness in our love for each other. We have to ask ourselves that question. Is this for real or am I faking it? There must be no pretend in our caring for each other. And so if I say, I will pray for you, then I will pray for you. I can't fake that. And so even this morning, talking to a few members of our church, I said to two, I'll remember to pray for you. Now, that can sound fake, but I made sure I put it down in my diary and I will pray for that person this week. If I say, let's catch up, let's have a coffee, we make sure we do catch up. You see, not being fake about our caring and loving. If I say, I will help you, I make sure I help you, and that is how we are to be with each other. In fact, Paul now gives a little challenge, a challenge for us Christians. He challenges us to not only love, but to outdo each other in showing such love. Like it's a competition. I want to love more, and I want to love more and more and more. It's like a competition. Look at verse 10. He says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourself. Or it's more literally there, outdo one another in showing honour. We are to outdo each other in showing love. There's that challenge, there's that competition. 
And so you can just imagine, it got me, I don't know why I imagined this, but I did. It's, it's like a boyfriend and a girlfriend speaking to one another romantically, I love you more. And the other one saying, no, I love you more. And the other one going back, no, I love you more. You see, it's that type of competition to love each other more. Now, I tried that with Yvonne. I love you more, Yvonne. It just gave her goosebumps in disgust. She says, well, show me. Clean the dishes. But it is this wonderful, healthy challenge in outdoing one another in showing love, in showing honor. That is what God expects from us. And nothing less. And so that is what we should expect as well. In fact, more than that, God wants us to be on fire for him, to be zealous. Now, we're all zealous and passionate about some things in life. We all have our own passion and desires. Some of us are passionate about sports, about our job, about our hobbies, about music, about movies, about our family. But what God wants here is that we are zealous and passionate for him, that our heart, soul, mind, and strength are all for him. You see, God doesn't want from us a mediocre Christianity. He doesn't want from us a lukewarm Christianity. In fact, in Revelation, God says, if you are lukewarm, I'll spit you out. You see, what God wants and what God expects is that we are all, not just some of us, but all of us, red hot boiling for him, on fire for him. And he wants our hearts fervent in service for him. Look at verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal. Now that's not just speaking to some Christians. It's not just speaking to those who went to Bible college. It's not just speaking to our leaders or elders. It's speaking to all Christians. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor. Now that can be translated to be on fire, serving the Lord. And so this should make us think, all of us, it should make us think. If that is what God expects, not from some of us, but from all of us, then the question is, why is it that only some Christians are on fire, while some others are not just lukewarm, not only lukewarm, but They sit on their hands in idleness. They're slothful and even lazy. Why is it that there are such stats that says in many churches it is only 20% of the Christians who do 80% of the work? While the 80% of the Christians are served by those 20%. Why is that the case? Why are there such stats? You see, it seems the reason here why there are some who are lukewarm and lacking in zeal. The reason Paul gives us here is the very opposite to what we normally expect. We normally would think, well, I must first be on fire, and then I go about serving. But you know what Paul did here? He he turns that around. The reason is the other way around. I must first go on serving, and then I'll be on fire. I'll be zealous, I'll be passionate as I go on serving. You see, if I sit around and wait for zeal to come, it just won't come. But if I get active and serve whatever way there is to do. Last week we looked at the different parts of the body. We all have a part to play. We are all important. Whatever that part is, if I am active and serve, 
it makes me more zealous. And the cycle continues. As I am more zealous, I continue to serve even more. So do you notice that? Verse 11 again. Never lack in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. How? By serving the Lord. And so idleness as Christians, laziness as Christians, just leads to more idleness and laziness. And you just go cold. But when you start getting involved in the things of God, thinking about the things of God and doing the things of God, serving, loving, putting your hands to service, then you get hot, red hot for God. And when you continue to do that, you stay hot and you continue to surf and you continue to stay hot. And so R.C. Ryle, J.C. Ryle, he insightfully said this. He said, Beware of cooling down. All you have to do is to be lazy and to sit still, and you will lose all your zeal. It's a simple argument, isn't it? Easy to understand, so get hot. What God expects is that we stay hot. And so we, we look towards the future. There lies our hope. In our present, we might be suffering in affliction. It might be difficult, but we'd be patient. And what do we do in the present? Well, we can trust God in prayer. That's what Paul goes on to say. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, Paul turns our focus from God to each other again. Our love, what, it, what must it be like? Well, it must be uncompromising, must be real, authentic, deeply personal. And not only to those we know, but to those we don't know. You see, each and every one of us is to pursue hospitality. The language is to pursue it. It's like you're hunting it down, hunting down hospitality, hunting down the fact that you are hospitable. Now, hospitality literally means to be the lover of stranger. It's the word philoxenos, lover of stranger. The opposite is xenophobia. Fear of stranger. But here, each one of us is to not just do hospitality once in a while when it's convenient. We are to pursue it, like to hunt it, to show love, to show hospitality, never to be just sitting on our hands and to wait for others to love us. It is the job of all of us, 100% of us, which means we are to do this to each other. Now, one of the requirements of eldership the, was just last week. We had our new elders, the other week, in fact, our new elders ordained and inducted. One of the requirements uh, from Paul in, in uh, 1 Timothy is that they are hospitable. And so we are to expect our elders to show hospitality at church, caring, loving those who are new, those who are visiting us, inviting over to homes. But what we see here is that it's not just elders, it's in fact all Christians. We are all required to show, to pursue hospitality. Look at verse 13 now. Share with God's people who are in need. That's for all of us to do. Practice or pursue hospitality. And so uncompromising in love, that is what is expected. Sharing and loving, especially to, to those in need. Now let's reflect on that for a moment. I would really hope that in our community, in our church family, 
that if I or one of our elders were to ask you, the church, look, we've got a brother or sister in desperate need. Their house was burnt down and they've lost everything. Or we've got a sister struggling financially. Her husband had an accident and there's no income coming into the home, into the household. If I or an elder were to ask you, the church, well, let's band together. Let's help out this brother or sister. I would hope that every one of us would get up, help out, not minimally, but excessively, generously, that all of us will put up our hands. Yes, I'll help out. All of us will pull out our wallets and say, I'll give, I'll, I'll help, I'll love as generously as I can. I would hope that we would do that for each other. You see, we do things for each other. But now we're told we're also to feel things for each other. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That should be the flavor of our church. When there's something to celebrate, we celebrate together. When someone is sad, when there is mourning and grieving in the family, we grieve together. And that's why in our church we encourage everyone to join a growth group. It's because we want everyone in our church to be cared for. And you in fact get the best care if you belong to a growth group where burdens are shared and prayed for, where joys are celebrated together. And so if that is how our life is meant to look, if that is what God expects from us, and if that is what we are to expect of each other, then it makes sense, this next bit. There must be no sense of pride or superiority or inferiority as we do life together. And so look at verse 16 now. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And so what does God expect from us? uncompromising in love, radical, delightful, beautiful love, and nothing less. And that's what we should be expecting from each other. But now the second part. What God also expects is uncompromising goodness from all of us. That is the people of God. That is how the people of God are to be. So radically good, so radically different to this world. But God wants us to be so incredibly, radically good, not just to those inside the church who love us, but as we look outside this church, to those who even want to hurt us, to always be a blessing in this world with all that we are and have, to be a blessing in this world and never a curse, even to those who hate your guts. Look at verse 14. We skipped that before. We'll come back to that now. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Again, it's so simple, isn't it? So hard to do, but so simple. But that is what God wants from us. So good. I mean, it's so radical, isn't it? So unbelievable, so uncompromisingly good. But that is how Christians are meant to be. In fact, we see this often enough. Last year... In Egypt on Palm Sunday, St. Mark's Cathedral in Alexandria, it was bombed by a suicide bomber. 16 people were killed. It was a terrible thing. They knew 
Christians go to church on Sundays? Well, let's go get them. Now, what happened after this event was that on live TV, a widow of the guard who was killed, she said on live TV, I forgive you to the killer. The TV host, he, he was gobsmacked. He, he couldn't believe it. He was stunned. He was moved by what he saw. And he said these cops, these Coptic Christians of Egypt, are made of steel. I mean, that's what it looks like, isn't it? To put into practice these simple words. To bless even those who persecute you. You see, the way of the world is, you hurt me, I'll get you back. You, you do something to me, you cause me pain, I'll get you back. But that must never be the way of the Christian. But sadly, it's sometimes even seen within the church where Christians get back at each other. But that must never be. Look at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And Paul's realistic here. It doesn't mean that we have to be on best terms and best buddies with everyone. But what we must always do is strive for peace. Let's work towards peace. There are friends who are fighting. Let's work towards peace. There is a marriage that's breaking down. Let's work towards peace. There are committees who aren't working the way they should with another committee and so forth. Let's work towards peace. Let's always work towards peace. Verse 18. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, it is so good, isn't it? To be so good. And to be so good means revenge never enters into our hearts. I mean, how many times in our hearts, just reflect on your own heart, have you plotted revenge? You never did it. You only thought it, but you plotted revenge. Oh man, that person can't believe he said that to me. I'm going to get him back. You're never, never brave enough to do it, but you think it. I can't believe that person did that. But I'm thinking this now. But you see, for us who are Christians, we can take so much comfort here. God has our back. He will make it right one day. And so we can, with peace, leave it to God. Look at verses 19 to 20. Do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And so they do evil to you. What do you do? You do good to them. They hate you. What do you do? You love them. They despise you. They look down at you. What do you do? You welcome them. I mean, that is so radically, delightfully, beautifully different to the rest of the world. That is to be uncompromisingly good. And now finally, Paul sums it all up. Sums it all up. It's really to be like Christ our Lord. He conquered evil and wickedness and depravity. Jesus conquered all of that, but not with evil, not with wickedness or depravity. Jesus conquered it all with good, with his life and with his death as a perfect sacrifice. It's the way of our Lord. 
And so Paul sums it up here, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so what does God expect from us? What is it that we should expect? It's a simple lesson. Uncompromising in love and uncompromising in goodness. And so that's our passage. It's what God expects each time we meet, each time we leave, 24-7. And so it's what we must also expect, not just a standard down here, but the highest standard of each other, the highest standard of ourselves. And so the natural question then for us to reflect on is, is this what we're like here? So loving, so good, so on fire for God, so much so that we actually want to be with each other longer. I mean, it's a strange challenge that Paul gave us. You know, I don't like losing, so I'm going to work hard to outdo everyone in love. Now imagine if we were all doing that, trying to outdo each other in love, how wonderful that relationship would be. And so do you think we are like that with each other? Do you think in our church family we can count on each other with our lives? Do you think in our church family we can depend on each other with our lives? That somehow what we have here as we do life together is so loving, is so good that everyone wants a piece of it. I mean, that is what we want here. That is what we are to expect. And can I say, I've been here only six and a half years, Chris has been here 15 years, can I say I have seen it amongst us? I have experienced it amongst us. I mean, I'm concerned for you, for every one of you, how you're going spiritually, how you're going personally, and there are many of you who are concerned for us and me likewise, how I'm going spiritually. See, we want to be here for each other, in each other's prayers, in each other's lives, our hands dirty for each other. I mean, I just heard this past week, a few of our members helped out a fellow sister move into her house and clean up and so forth. That's wonderful. I received a beautiful card this morning from a loving member to encourage me in the faith. I received another text to encourage me. This is what we are to be for each other in each other's prayers and in each other's lives. Now, a couple, couple of years ago at our church camp, some of you were there, or many of you were there, in fact. Remember that little challenge, that simple challenge I, I gave us all? Three simple challenges. And in the kindness of God, I think we've seen the fruits of, of our efforts. Now, those challenges, remember the, the three? The first one, every week... In the first five minutes after our service, don't speak to your friends. That sounds strange, but don't speak to your friends. Avoid your friends like a plague. But seek those who you don't know. Be one of those who show hospitality, who loves the stranger. That's the first one. Second one, every week, aim. This, this is to make it easy for introverts like myself. Aim for not ten conversations. Aim for only one deep and meaningful conversation to build a brother or sister in their walk. Only one each week. Makes it easy for people like me who's an introvert. 
And the third one is for all of us to be on our knees, to pray that God will use us to save one soul and to bring one soul to heaven. Now, I think over the years, we have seen some fruits of that. But how tragic would it be if the opposite were true of us? That we would somehow be content at being lukewarm Christians. That visitors and friends who come to be amongst us never feel welcomed. That a brother or sister is in deep, desperate need. But none of us knows. That a brother or sister would even consider leaving our fellowship because they don't feel any love here. They don't see any goodness here. It's just cold and people are not on fire for God. But in the kindness of God, I think we do see a lot of that. But let's turn up the heat a bit more. Turn up the heat a bit more that we be more on fire for God, that we'll be boiling hot for God. It's perhaps what keeps Yvonne and myself in ministry. I mean, if it's not the case, but if we were the only ones serving, you know, that would be difficult. But what we see, that so many of you are on fire for the same person, for the same Lord, and that keeps us going because it helps us see we're partnering together in the cause of the gospel. It keeps us going too. And so what do you think we are like to each other? Well, we want to be on fire for God. Let's turn up the heat a bit more. Uncompromising in our loving goodness towards each other. But now what about our relationship with this world? You see, Christians, you, not just on Sunday, but every single day of the week, 24-7, you are the best and the worst advertisement for the name we bear, for Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour. We as Christians who bear that name either draw people to Christ because of our love and goodness or we repel people from Christ because of our lack of love and lack of goodness. And that's why Jesus said, it is by love that people will know that you are my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus did also promise Christians will be hated and persecuted by this world. That is true, and it is happening. But if anyone hates Christians, if anyone hates us, it must never be because of our character, but because of our message. They can hate us because of the message we proclaim and believe that there is only one God of all, there is only one Saviour of all. But it must never be because of our character. Your friends must not hate you because you're a foolish character. You're an annoying, unloving, hurtful, hateful character. That must never be the case. Our character must be impeccable, uncompromising, loving, in love and in goodness. At uni, in the workforce, amongst our neighbours amongst our friends and even our family who sees the worst of us. See, by our lives, which we must never give the world a reason to hate us. We are the best and the worst advertisement for Christ. And that's why this American author once said this, Brennan Manning. He said, 
the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, isn't that sad? But is it true that Christians are the ones who give Christ the worst name? Well, let's pray that that's not any of us. But of course, the opposite is also true, isn't it? We are also the best advertisement for Christ. Though I'm not the very emotional type, I did my personality test recently, and I'm the ultra-opposite ultra extreme of the feeling type. I'm the thinking type. So I'm not a very emotional type. But sometimes, for your information, just so you know I have a heart, I am sometimes moved as well. And I'm moved by stories of, of Christians who love when it is so difficult to love. We heard one of the Egyptian Christians already, but he's another. So hard to believe. It's a story about a serial killer... Gary Leon Ridgway, known infamously as the Green River Killer from Washington State. He was caught in 2001 and was convicted of 49 murders. But the reality was he killed more than that. He confessed to 71 murders. Now you read a story like that and you think, how could anyone do such a thing? But what was shocking about that story was not just that he was so heartless, so ruthless, so evil, so sick in his ways. What was shocking was what happened at his sentencing in 2003. For more than two hours, families of these victims who were killed and murdered, they had the opportunity to express their hurt and their anger towards this guy for the grief that he has caused. They cursed him. They called him all sorts of names, coward, monster, animal, pest, parasite, garbage. And they wanted revenge. They wanted to have him killed. You don't deserve to live, some said. Someone will get you in prison. Now when you hear that and you hear these, these feelings from these, these families, it sounds reasonable. They have good reason, very good reason in fact to be so angry. But what was so shocking about this story was the response of one father, the one father of one of the victims, Robert Rule, with tears and lips trembling. He said this, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. He blessed instead of cursed. He overcame evil with good. And those words brought Ridgeway, who was hard and stone-faced throughout the trial. You can watch the video of it online. He had no emotion at all. But when he heard those words... He was brought down to tears. He was broken. The hardest of hearts was softened by the love and goodness of a Christian man who offered Christ-like forgiveness. 
I mean, that is how Christians are to be towards this world. But how can anyone do such a thing? So unbelievable, so outrageously loving and good. Well, finally, it is because of our relationship with God, the Almighty, our Father. It's because of what we know of God. You see, this whole unit began at chapter 12, verse 1. It is in view of God's mercy. It is firstly in view of all that God has done for us. God himself showed us in his Son uncompromising love and uncompromising goodness towards us. And so that is the motivation for why we are to have the highest expectations from all of us and even of ourselves. That is the motivation for us all. And if that is so, then we must all believe and confess, well, what is there that I would not do for my Lord in view of his mercy? What is there that I would not offer for my Lord in view of his mercy? I mean, I'm not going to be one of those Christians who's going to sit on my hands and just be satisfied to be lukewarm, loving only when it's easy and convenient. Not me and not you too. In view of God's mercy, at the very least, I too will strive to be uncompromising in love. I too will strive to be uncompromising in goodness. That is what God expects. That is what we are to expect, to be on fire for him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that what you expect of us will be true in us. As disciples of Jesus, that we will be like Jesus, that we will be uncompromising in love and goodness that we will be shaped by Jesus and transformed to be like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll make all our efforts in the Lord not in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.